Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 6 of the Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth by optimizing how they approach go-to-market strategy, segmentation, positioning, and, of course, pricing and packaging. For those of you who haven't tuned in before, each season is dedicated to a specific theme. This season, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. I've seen firsthand that pricing is an extremely powerful yet overlooked growth lever. Companies that change pricing consistently grow faster than their peers who don't, according to benchmarking data from 400 plus companies. But how do you know when to change pricing and how to go about it without upsetting your existing customers? This season, we have a killer lineup of experts who can help. They'll share their pricing experience from well-known companies like SurveyMonkey, Pluralsight, SendGrid, and Envision, just to name a few. We also want to make this season interactive. Please send us your burning pricing questions by tweeting at OpenViewVenture. Now on with the show. On this episode of Build, I sat down with Blake Bartlett, a partner at OpenView and host of Season 5 of the podcast. We caught up about what he learned about product-led growth from his season and how product-led companies approach pricing as part of their growth strategy. Blake, you've just finished hosting Season 5 of the Build podcast, which was all about product-led growth. I wanted to flip things around and have you back on as a guest for Season 6, which focuses on SaaS pricing. So first of all, welcome back to the pod. How does it feel to be on the other side? Yeah, it's good to be here. It's a little strange to be on the other side. I would say on the one hand, there's much less prep that I have to do. I'm not the one that's coming up with all the questions, but on the other hand, I'm the entertainment. So hopefully I'm entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) I have no doubts about that. And, you know, listeners know who you are, but for those just tuning in, could you share more about your background and what you do at OpenView? Yeah, so I've been a VC for the last 12 years. I've gotten to work with some really great companies during that time, companies like Expensify, Calendly, Glassdoor, Wayfair, and many others. Been here at OpenView since 2013, so going on six years now. In addition to investing here at OpenView, which is certainly what I spend a lot of my time doing, figuring out which is the next company we're going to invest in, working closely with them after we make the investment. But outside of that, I spent a lot of time with you, Kyle, on product-led growth and really kind of across the firm. It's a big initiative for us, and it's something that we're really trying to push forward. Why did you decide to spend the entire season on product-led growth? Why are you so bullish about that trend? Yeah, I mean, I think that we see it as the sort of continuation of and the evolution of really go to market in SaaS today. I think we started back, you know, sort of in a prior era where all SaaS was sold through a traditional sales model, probably field-based sales. We're talking, you know, 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s. Everybody was out in the field carrying a bag, carrying a quota, and it was more of a heavy lift sort of sale. We saw that sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s shift towards more of an inside sales model, which certainly delabored and sort of made it more efficient to get high velocity sales going. But it still was traditionally a sales driven or marketing driven model. I think that we're now starting to enter into an era when the products can sell themselves and where we think about product led growth as being a go to market strategy where the product itself and product usage is what's driving user acquisition, user conversion, and expansion. And so I think there's a ton of power in it. And if you can get it right, we sort of see it as the potential to drive a full delaboring of the go-to-market efforts that are involved in a SaaS company. I guess from my perspective, what's really interesting about that is that by delaboring the sales and marketing process, you can both scale extremely quickly because it's not about hiring new people in order to fuel growth, but then you can also do so extremely efficiently. And I know you had on guests of season five that have been profitable and bootstrap companies. 
But, you know, after recording season five and all of the amazing guests, what are some of the things you learned about product-led growth that you didn't know before? Just to sort of pick up on that point that you had mentioned, I've heard about for a long time, again, being a VC for the last 12 years, that there's this fundamental trade-off between growth and profitability. So if you want to grow faster, then you have to spend more money. If you want to be profitable, then it might be done at the expense of your growth rate. And they're kind of fundamentally inverses of one another. But we're seeing with product-led growth that you can actually have your cake and eat it too. You can grow incredibly quickly, but you can also do it in a way that's capital efficient. And in many cases, highly profitable as well. So that's pretty powerful. But I guess getting specifically to your question of what did I learn that was new about product-led growth? I would say the biggest thing is that you know it is definitely a wave that's starting to pick up and it's starting to take over lots of different types of products, lots of different end markets. It's certainly not a monolithic, single flavor type of thing. However, it still is very early in terms of how companies are adopting it and what it looks like inside a business inside an organization to actually pull off product-led growth. And I'd say a great example to point to is how are teams organized? You know, if we just think about who owns growth, right? Who's responsible for growth? Or a question that I asked a few people during the season was, who owns the revenue number? Right. I think it's pretty clear in a traditional sales led model who owns the revenue number. It's usually going to be the VP of sales or the CRO or something like that. That's the person and that's the team that's responsible for hitting that new growth number for the current year. But in a product led model, who owns it? Is it still sales? Is it marketing product or is it something else? Right. I heard examples from folks where there could be sort of a triad sort of approach where it's a shared responsibility across three distinct teams. You could have product owning a component of growth, owning a component of that revenue number, growth marketing, and then some high velocity sales model. That's a little bit more of an evolution of where we've kind of been historically, just sort of innovating on and iterating on that. I've seen it where you have a product team and then a dedicated growth team. Elena Verna, who's at Malwarebytes and was previously at SurveyMonkey, has a philosophy where growth owns the growth engine and the go-to-market engine, but also the product itself. So really kind of growth and the growth team is driving almost everything in the business in a lot of ways. And then I'd say the most interesting approach that I heard was Expensify, where everyone in the entire company owns product and owns growth. It's a company that doesn't have any product managers, despite being a fairly large business and no dedicated growth team and no traditional sales team. So it really is this very unique beast where everybody owns the product and everybody owns growth. So I think we're going to see more convergence and more similarities over time in terms of best practices and how teams organize themselves. But right now, it's a little bit of a grab bag in terms of how people are approaching it. Yeah, I just listened to the Expensify episode, and I have to say that was really illuminating for me as well, where the people that are in a sales role are not quota-carrying folks, and they are thinking about how can they drive you know, more efficiency in the go-to-market motion for customers, drive a better customer experience, and they're contributing to product as much as they're thinking the way a traditional sales rep might. So super interesting stuff. And you know, from your conversations, how do companies with a successful product-led growth strategy approach packaging and pricing differently from other SaaS companies? You think a lot more about the user journey and the customer journey and how that pertains to pricing and packaging, a lot more so than with a traditional model. In a traditional model, there really isn't any way to use the product until you've actually signed a contract. So pricing and packaging is kind of almost its own independent thing, and it's not really as relevant where the pricing and packaging fits within the customer journey or the user journey. But in product-led growth, you're discovering the product without the benefit of a sales demo, without the benefit of a customer success person onboarding you or somebody training you on the product 
product. So you need to one, make sure that it's a really easy product to use and to get up and running with, but not just to onboard and figure out kind of where the buttons are, but actually to get value out of, right? Because if somebody's, you know, discovering the product, it might be one of many products that they're trying. Maybe they discovered it on product hunt or something like that. You have a very limited period of time in order to wow them and to sort of catch their attention by delivering value. And you really need to deliver that value first And then later on, after you've delivered the value, after you've gotten them hooked on your product, then you ask for payment, right? And figuring out where do you place that paywall and what's the right relationship between value that's been delivered, but then also incremental value that can be unlocked through paying. And that's the biggest question is really where do you place the paywall? And when you think about those acquisition strategies, I mean, you've really got two main options at the end of the day, right? Either a free trial model where people can use the product as much as they want, and then there's some sort of time limit to that usage, or the freemium model where they have, maybe it's a limited version of the product that they can use for free as long as they want. You had some guests on like Calendly, Expensify, or Trello that are really great examples of freemium in SaaS. When do you see freemium as a good business strategy? I think it's best suited for situations where you are focused on the user and where you can deliver meaningful value to the end user, even if their team members aren't using the product yet or if their entire department hasn't adopted the product. So specifically, I think that that is best suited for pain points and problem statements where there is fairly acute but also consistent pain experienced by the end user. And I think a great example for this is actually Calendly, right? Where that acute pain, the annoyance of going back and forth to find a time to meet somebody or to have a call, everybody experiences that pain the same, right? Everybody hates that back and forth that happens in order to find a time. And it's also experienced acutely at the time that you're trying to schedule something. And it's, again, fairly universal across the average knowledge worker globally. Again, it doesn't even really matter what language you speak. This pain point is the same across the universe of addressable customers. So it's a perfect situation that's built for a freemium model because you can deliver a consistent, relatively simple free product that will alleviate that acute pain point that is articulated and experienced in a pretty consistent way across this global user base. So it's, one, perfect for product-led growth, and then two, also perfect for freemium. It's interesting you bring up Calendly. I'm a Calendly user myself. I use the free version because you get so much value out of the free version. I probably will upgrade at some point, but I have not hit that point yet. And I guess that brings up a classic challenge of any freemium business is that they're really in a difficult position with pricing. They want to make the free version as good as possible to draw people in and give them an amazing experience, but they can't make it too good. Otherwise, they won't be able to monetize their users. What's the right balance from your perspective? Let's keep using the Expensify example. So we'll get into Expensify. The highest level, I think that the two ways that you could approach this, and I've seen different companies approach it different ways, is either one, you could have a really good product that when you upgrade, it's supercharged and it's made that much better and it solves new problems and new pain points for you. So original pain point solved and then new stuff unlocked when you pay for the product versus how can we effectively you know, limit the product functionality in order to compel people to want to upgrade? While that makes sense on paper, a lot of times you're basically delivering a subpar product that doesn't really add that much value, doesn't really solve any particular problems, and you have to pay in order to unlock the promised value. I think that's a pretty bad value prop versus the supercharged and already good product sort of approach. So if we look at that through the lens of Calendly, the basic free version of the product is the product that you and I would use to schedule a simple 30-minute coffee or 30-minute call or meeting or something like that. That's what you get for free. Now, if there's something else that has to happen around that scheduling event, say I'm a sales rep and I want to log all of those events and all of that stuff automatically 
into Salesforce. That's an integration that you would pay for. If I also am going to be sharing my screen with you and I want to spin up very easily and very elegantly a GoToMeeting or a JoinMe or a Zoom or whatever my conference screen share solution is, I can automatically have that appended to the invite that gets sent to both of us after the booking event has taken place and so on and so forth. So you see that Calendly does this perfectly. It solves that core pain point of basic scheduling and it will solve that pain point for you for as long as you're a user. But if you want additional supercharged functionality, put more of your workflow on autopilot, then you can pay for the product as well. And both of those are pretty great value props. Yeah, so thinking about it in terms of the sophistication of the user and their specific use case for that product, what I think Expensify as well from your conversation was super interesting in that they have multiple routes to upgrade people from their freemium product. They've got, you know, a better version of freemium for an individual where, you know, it's a paid version with smart scanning, or if you want to start sending your expense reports to an administrator and build in more administrative capabilities and workflow rules, you know, that's a natural point when people might upgrade. So they have a good individual product, but then there's also triggers to drive people to pay more. You know, I want to switch gears a bit. I know pricing and packaging is a topic that you're passionate about. When would you say you caught the pricing bug and realized the importance of pricing in SaaS? Well, if I'm being honest, I caught the pricing bug when I met you, but (laughs) you also helped me to realize the power of the pricing bug in the pricing and packaging lever. I didn't plant that question, by the way. (laughs) And I started to see it everywhere after that. And so, you know, I'd say on Expensify, as you were talking about, when we were first doing the analysis to consider an investment in the business, this was, you know, four or five years ago at this point, we saw a few instances in the history of the company where they had made relatively small and relatively subtle pricing and packaging changes. Back to that point that I was making before, exactly where the paywall is placed, we saw them move that around a few times with dramatic impact. And so seeing that ability to make a relatively small change and see a dramatic impact across a software vendor's customer base, pretty powerful, right? Another example was Typeform. So this is a company that I've gotten to know the team over there pretty well, and they've also experimented in a pretty impressive way with where is the paywall placed and even moving single individual features behind the paywall and seeing the correlating increase in conversion rate is a pretty powerful impact. So I think it really is that leverage, the ability to make a relatively small, subtle change and see a huge impact to the economic model or the financials of a business. And that was the thing that sold me and and got me convinced. And is pricing ever something that has a role in your thesis about you know whether to invest in a company? Are you looking at that as an investment criteria? I would say it's not a core deciding factor. You know that if you do have a particular pricing model, I will be interested. If you don't have that model, I will be uninterested. That being said, certainly if there is an ability in your product to have usage-based pricing, that can be the underpinnings for really a pretty compelling sort of organic growth strategy or expansion strategy inside a customer account. Usage-based pricing is great because you don't have to sell more usage. People just naturally are using more, and if they pay more when they use more, it's pretty good for sort of driving net negative. Churn. So I like usage-based pricing, but it's not something I exclusively filter for. I would say the biggest thing is just have you thought about pricing and put some real sort of strategic thought into it? And are you paying attention to it and iterating on it versus did you just pull something out of thin air and just leave it as is? Right. And that's something we've seen time and again, companies just under-investing in, not having people internally that are looking at it, that are testing it, optimizing it, and so on, just like they would with any other part of their business. They're not doing those kinds of activities when it comes to pricing. 
as an investor, you have a really unique perspective to be able to watch companies grow and adapt over time. What are some of the most common mistakes that companies make at the early stages that you help them correct? I think the biggest challenge that I see when we get involved, which is the expansion stage. So you have a product been built, it's in the market, you have some initial customers, you have some initial revenue and you're starting to grow. So you've hit that product market fit, but you're still relatively early and there's a lot of scaling of the company and of the overall sort of customer facing operations that has to happen. And I think the biggest challenge that I see companies facing is really just honestly not knowing who their customer is. I think a lot of times they'll think they know who their customer is, but they're not being specific enough. For example, you could say, well, our target customer is retail, and that's all you need to know. But Walmart is retail. Casper mattresses could also be considered retail. And then the corner bodega you know, here in Boston could also be considered retail and everything in between. But the way that Walmart buys versus the way the corner bodega buys is going to be completely different. So you really need to get much more specific about what segment of that universe are you selling to, what size customer, and then even more specifically from there, what are the specific pain points that you're alleviating for that target customer? And how is that unique from you know how somebody else that's broadly in the retail category might be experiencing the pain? And just getting really specific about your users and about their pain, and then leaning into that for your go-to-market efforts. I think that's the biggest thing. When you look at companies that have adjusted pricing and packaging over time, what kind of impact can those changes have on a company's growth? Yeah, I think a really great example to point to here, I mean, there certainly are plenty that I alluded to in the past of, you know, someone like Expensify making a relatively small change in their pricing and packaging or the placement of the paywall and seeing dramatic overnight impact there. But I'd also point to an example with one of our portfolio companies, Logical. So Logical is a legal tech business serving the e-discovery use case. And about two years ago, the company layered in on top of their existing subscription-based pricing model an ability for customers to pay-as-you-go as well which was really an ability for them to sell to customers the way that customers wanted to buy. Customers weren't always prepared to or even have an estimation of what they would need for an annual e-discovery budget. All they knew is they had an immediate pain point, an immediate case or an immediate litigation that needed to be addressed today. And if you could sell them a solution that would address that immediate hair on fire issue today and then make them successful with it, then you would have the opportunity to win the next case or the next litigation thereafter and get to a point where they standardize on your product and then are ready eventually for a subscription model. And so having this way of not a single monolithic pricing model that might actually alienate some customers because they're not ready to buy in that way, but really listening to your customer and selling in the way that they want to buy can unlock this huge opportunity. And that's a business for Logical that's gone from you know zero to tens of millions of dollars of revenue in a short period of time really not by changing the product, just by changing the way that customers are able to engage with the product and selling to them in the way that folks want to buy. Yeah, I think Logical's a really great example. And we actually will have Andy, the founder and CEO, on as a guest later this season to tell more about that story. And what would you say are your top three pieces of advice for SaaS founders when it comes to packaging and pricing? So the first one is pay attention to it. Don't make it an afterthought. So put some thought into it (laughs) as a starting point. And then another point would be something that comes back to the pricing survey that you've conducted for our audience in the past. And then what you and I have talked about on stage at events before, which is this amazing fact that so many people don't do any pricing research or any pricing testing. When it's this powerful growth lever that can really have tremendous impact in your business, you're A-B testing and sort of doing user research for everything else inside your business, from your marketing messaging to the features that you're going to sort of release in order to offer value to your users 
everything else down to the subject line of an email that your sales rep might send and what has a better open rate and conversion rate, but you're not testing your pricing, something's off here, right? And so pay attention to it, do some research on it, and then continue to iterate on the testing of it over time because there's always room to improve. And then lastly, just deeply understanding the value. Again, back to that, especially in product-led growth, understanding where that aha moment happens in the customer's journey and placing the paywall strategically right after that aha moment as opposed to right before that aha moment will have a dramatic effect to your conversion and ultimate ability to monetize. But the only way that you can get there is, again, back to the idea of research and testing. Yeah, I think those are all great pieces of advice. One final question for you. What's one SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging standpoint? I think Slack has done a really interesting job on multiple fronts. The biggest thing that jumps out to me with Slack is that you can adopt the product and it grows with inside your organization, but the pricing metric is not the paywall, which is interesting. The pricing metric is per user pricing, but the paywall is not based on a limited number of users. You can have as many users on Slack for free as you want, but the paywall is a certain volume of messages, right? 10,000 messages or something like that. And so the ability to grow virally and gain sort of full penetration into an entire organization, an entire team, but still being able to leverage a per seat pricing model and find an interesting way to get there through packaging and through placing that paywall based on usage and based on the aha moment that I'd said before. I think Slack's done just a really elegant job with that. Yeah, charging based on usage, but also based on users. Great example. Well, Blake, thanks again for joining us this first episode of season six. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Thanks for tuning into the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time. <laughs>